your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. We've been going through Hebrews on a verse-by-verse basis for some time now, and uh, we've kind of been in and out, and now we're back to it. So um, trust that you have, will, those of you who have been here will be able to recall all of the um, journey that we've been on so far. If you're visiting with us, I pray that you'll be able to uh, glean some wisdom from these verses of Scripture specifically. Um, this morning's message is going to be somewhat challenging, and it's a, especially if you're visiting, it's kind of a unique topic, uh, dealing with a unique subject from Scripture, and, and especially a subject that's often associated with legalism. And so I just want to give a, a preface to that. You're like, man, this is my first time coming to this church and it seems really legalistic, okay? So we're not really legalistic. Um, we just believe what the Bible says and we want to try to present it. I want to try to present it this morning in a, in a gracious way, but, but also not to, not to overlook a certain truth that I believe is clear in this text of Scripture and hopefully be able to unpack it for you that it will be, you'll walk away and say, hey... That truth that I've seen as being legalistic for years is not really legalistic, and maybe be able to open up your heart and your eyes to the, to the blessing, to the joy that comes through this truth that I'm going to present to you this morning. So in Hebrews chapter number seven, I'll read the first 10 verses to you, and we're really this morning just going to tap into one word that appears seven times in these first 10 verses, and so... Um, whenever you find a word that appears seven times in ten verses, it's important to, to take note at least of that word and uh, at least consider that maybe there's something there that the writer is trying to communicate to us, a truth that we don't want to, we don't want to overlook. And so this morning we're going to look at that word that's found in these verses, and, and the word is tithing. And so we're going to look and unpack this idea of tithing from a, a biblical perspective and uh, from what the Lord tells us in, in Hebrews chapter number 7. Just to give you a little background as we get ready to read, just remember that the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And the theme of Hebrews 7 is Jesus is a better priest. That's the main focus of Hebrews 7. And remember from the last time we talked that a priest is somebody who builds bridges, right? He is one that connects us to God. He's the one that, um, in, in the Old Testament, he would be kind of an intercessor, uh, an interceder on behalf of mankind to God. He would, he would make a way for them to access God the Father. And Christ is the greater intercessor because he is the one that, he is God, and he is the one that makes it possible for us to enter into God's presence. So he is the greater bridge builder. Uh, he is the greater, or the, really the, the ultimate way in which we access or come into the presence of God, and we find acceptance. So with that in mind, let's read, um, follow along with me if you would. We'll begin in verse 1 of chapter number 7. The Bible says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And just note there that that tenth part is another uh, term that's used for tithe. It, uh, it is interchangeable in this text 
the interchangeable terms are tithe and tenth. And I'll explain that a little bit more, uh, a little bit further later. The Bible says that he gave a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And just to stop there and make a comment, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Um, there are three possibilities with Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an Old Testament um, figure, if you will. And uh, he's either an angel, an angelic being that comes down to earth and serves as a mediator between God and man in the Old Testament before you have the law, before you have the um, Levitical priesthood. Um, it's possible that Melchizedek played that role. Um, he's also possibly a man. Um, just a, a man who was a priest during that time prior to the law. And then many believe, and I, and I would adopt this thinking as well, that it is a Christophany, uh, which is basically Jesus Christ making a physical appearance to mankind prior to his incarnation. Uh, so it's not that he becomes a man in the Old Testament, but many times in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ actually re reveals himself to men. And he'll take up upon a physical form, he'll look like a man, but, but he is that, in, that, in that moment, he is, he is Christ, and he is presenting himself in human form. So I, would, I take that that is what this means, and as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it really doesn't matter um, which one of those three that you own, that you adopt for your own theology, because ultimately they all point to Christ. Whether he was a man pointing to Christ, whether he was an angel pointing to Christ, or whether he was Christ himself, what we know is, is that Christ is important. And, and that's what you want to embrace and walk away. We can argue over details of Scripture till we're blue in the face and not accomplish anything, or we can kind of see what is God's purpose in this, what is he trying to um, present to us. And in this context, he's just trying to say that Jesus is awesome. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the one who can make us, uh, bring us into God's presence and be accepted. So that's the idea of this Melchizedek. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. Another time that that word is used for tithe. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descendant from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, at the very least, Melchizedek is better than Abraham. At the very least, that's what this text is saying. At the, if you wanted to take it to another extreme, you could just simply say that Christ is better than Abraham, that Christ is superior to Abraham because, because Melchizedek is a reflection on Christ and he who blesses is better than the one who is blessed, is more significant. The Bible says in verse number eight, in, this, in, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case, by one of whom that it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, 
who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray together and then we'll unfold this. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the many blessings that you bestow upon us. Thank you for the truth of your word. We ask this morning for a, a grace. Um, we ask that your spirit would move freely amongst us, that we might learn and grow and um, honor you and respect you and show you the um, respect that you are, you are worthy of. We love you. Thank you for the ones that you've brought here today. And uh, please bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. So since the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better, and it's important that we remember that the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better, and seven times out of ten, and these seven times out of ten verses, this theme of tithing is mentioned to us, we must conclude that there is a connection between tithing and Jesus being better. There must be some type of a connection in, uh, for God to make such a strong emphasis on this text of saying, here Melchizedek is, and Melchizedek is the priest, and he is a very significant priest. And how do we know he's a very significant priest? How do we know he's an amazing priest? How do we know he's an extraordinary priest, even if he was just a man? How do we know that? How do we know if we, if we take the picture of Christ? How do we know that Christ is extraordinary? How do we know that Christ is significant? How do we know that Christ is better? We know that by the, by the tithing. That's the picture that he's drawing here is, is the amount and the person giving money to Melchizedek displays him as better, displays him as more amazing and, and more significant. So it's important that the connection that's made here is, is presented and, 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 and owned that tithing, giving, if you will, is somehow connected to Jesus Christ being better. And, and I would say this to you, that whether we tithe or don't tithe doesn't affect Jesus Christ's essence, right? Whether we tithe or don't tithe doesn't make Jesus Christ better, but our giving to the Lord is a display of how Jesus Christ is better. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement, if you will, to the world around us that Jesus Christ is better. Isn't it true that the things that we give the most of our money to or our time to or our energy to are the most important things in our life? Isn't, would you say that that would be an accurate statement? That the things that we're most committed to are those things that are most important to us? So would it not be an, 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 a um, logical conclusion to say that if we're most committed to Christ with our time, with our money, with our energy, then that means that he is the most, he is the most important. It is a display of his value. And that's the, really the purpose of this text is to say that Melchizedek's value or Christ's value was specifically displayed by Abraham giving him tithes, by Abraham paying him. And we'll unfold that because it's important to understand who Abraham is mentioned as in this text to see how it unfolds. Let me, let me give you a little story here, a historical event 
that is recorded back in the book of 1 Kings in the 10th chapter that will help us understand this idea of tithing or giving as a display of the value of an individual. You'll probably remember this story as I go through it. It occurred in 950 BC, and it was when the Queen of Sheba, and Sheba was a a southern Arabian region, it is currently known as Yemen today, that she, uh, this Queen of Sheba, was enamored by the wisdom and the wealth and the riches of Solomon. Now, she was overwhelmed. She, she was hearing these stories. There were, her, her servants were talking around her, and people were talking about this Solomon, this extraordinary leader Solomon, who was an amazing leader who had amassed great wealth and great riches and who had made many wise decisions along his way, displaying his wisdom to all the world. And we know that Solomon was one of the wisest men in the world, During that day, and his wisdom, you remember the story, he asked God for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom. The gift that God gave him was extraordinary wisdom. And so this Queen of Sheba, she recognizes this great wisdom, and she wants to know about it because she doesn't believe necessarily all of the reports that she's receiving. If these reports are true, then this is an extraordinary man. So what does she do? Being a great queen herself, she amasses a retinue, which is a group of people, uh, counselors, advisors, assistants. She she gathers this large group of people, wise men, men that could go and could challenge Solomon. And she goes to Jerusalem and she challenges Solomon. and, And these wise men challenge Solomon. They begin to ask him all of these questions to verify whether or not All of these things are true about him. Now, one of the interesting things that she does is that in the process of going to see whether these things are true about Solomon, she takes with her a large number of camels, a large number of spices, gold, and silver. So she brings this, really, if you think about it from our modern day perspective, she brings this great treasure with her. She brings this extraordinary treasure with her, this this, uh, massive amount of gold and silver and and camels and spices, all of these things that have great value to her. And why does she bring these things with her? She brings these things with her because if Solomon proves to be what they're saying he is, right? (laughs) If Solomon proves to be amazing, If Solomon proves to be extraordinary, if Solomon proves to be the wisest man on the earth, if Solomon proves to be the richest man on the earth, then she doesn't want to enter into his presence without without an offering. She does not want to enter into his presence without a gift. So if you read in 1 Kings 10, what you find at the end of the story is she comes into Solomon's presence. They ask him and challenge him with all these questions. He responds in such an extraordinary way that the queen of Sheba's response is, I, have not, I had not expected the half of Solomon's wisdom, the half of Solomon's treasure, meaning that he had twice as much wisdom and twice as much treasure and twice as much of everything that, than she even expected. He proved himself to be extraordinarily more than what she had expected. The verses in 1 Kings chapter number 10 literally say that she was breathtaking. 
that her breath was taken away. She couldn't even breathe because of the extraordinary nature of Solomon. Listen, Jesus is a better than Solomon. Jesus is better than Solomon. So here's this extraordinary king, and this queen comes, and she brings this massive treasure, knowing I don't want to enter the presence of this great king without something to offer, without some kind of a gift to give him, right? I don't want to enter into his presence. This is an extraordinary person. But this this Solomon is seen, even in the book of Hebrews, as being less than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is more significant. He's more amazing. It's interesting if you'll read the end of chapter number 10 of of, um, 1 Kings and also into chapter number 11, what happens is, is it begins to describe all of the riches that Solomon had amassed, all of the riches that Solomon had gathered based upon kings and people coming to him to see how amazing he was. In other words, every time somebody came to to see King Solomon, they brought an extraordinary gift with them. And his treasures were were innumerable because of all of the gifts and all of the treasures that he, he would amass. You guys know the story. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Do you know why he had that many wives and concubines? They were gifted to him. Other kings, other leaders of other nations, that was a way in which they created a bond with this extraordinary king. It was a way in which they established a peace with this extraordinary king. Solomon is presented in the word of God as less than Christ. But yet we see this extraordinary nature of of who he is. We see these same characteristics in scripture in relation to honoring and respecting and giving to God. These gifts are not demanded by any law. Remember that. These gifts, the gifts that Queen of Sheba brought, were not commanded by any law. There was no law that demanded them bring a certain amount. They brought what they wanted to bring. These gifts are not like demands that come under the law, but they are rather acts of worship that are a result of respect and love for God. And we see this in a few other places in Scripture. Um, We see it with the wise men coming to see Jesus Christ with their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh. And they came to see the king. And they brought with them what? Gifts. They brought with them gifts. Now, was there a command? Do you know the 11th command? If you go and see the Messiah when he's born, bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Was it? No, there was no command. There was no law. There was no legalism here. It was simply that out of, the, out of the overflow of their hearts for who they were going to see, they wanted to bring something with them. They wanted to share something with them. We see this in, se- in several narratives in the Old Testament when kings would go to other kings or other leaders. Um, we see this when kings would want to make peace with other kings, if they would bring gifts And we see this with Jacob's sons. We see this really all throughout Scripture. We see it with Joseph's brothers when they come to Egypt and they're seeking food. We see they bring gifts with them to gain favor, to have favor. It is a gift because they're entering into the presence of something or someone who is important. And that's what we see with tithing. 
If we go back, we'll go back if you want to turn with me to the book of Genesis in chapter 14. Genesis chapter number 14. We're going to look at a few places in the scriptures where tithing is, is taught um, and it's taught in such a way that it's not under a legalistic system. Okay? So before you, while you're turning there, let me give you a few thoughts on what is tithing. Why do we use the word tithing? Uh, what is the definition of tithing? We note that in the text of Scripture here, tithing and tenth are interchangeable. And the reason is because the, both the Hebrew and the Greek word that are translated tithing in the Scriptures are, they basically mean tenth, a tenth part, ten percent. That would be the meaning of the word. So when you think about tithing and when most preachers teach on tithing, they usually teach on giving a tenth part of what God has given us, giving a, giving a tenth part of that to, um, to the Lord, okay, 10%. And so that's just what the word means. It, it, it's, it, it's nothing beyond that. You just, that is what the word means, and therefore that is how we, how we teach it, a tenth part. And you wouldn't even see in a lot of the gifts that were given in the Old Testament, you won't even see the mention of the tenth part when kings gave them to kings or when in the case where this queen gives, you don't see that idea of the tenth part. But every time you see giving in the Old Testament or the New Testament when it's given directly to God, you will see that idea of that tenth part, um, that, that tithe, ten percent to the Lord. Okay, so and again, under the under the Jewish system, under the under the um, law, if you will, the Mosaic law, there was a tenth part given, and actually grew from there. It was called a tithe, but really it was more of a tax. It was a taxing of the Jewish people in order to facilitate the needs of the of the um, of the Hebrew culture, of the Hebrew nation, of the Jewish Israelite nation. It was it was more of a tax. So when you see in the Bible, tithe mentioned in a legalistic way, and it is mentioned in a legalistic way, it's mentioned in a way where it is commanded and demanded and expected of Jewish people. When you see that, just know that that is under the, under the law, it's under the Mosaic law, it was specifically meant for um, supporting and supplying the needs of the Jewish people, and very similar to what we have today, we have a tax system, right? And... Uh, and it grows and it declines depending on who's in office. And the Bible had a tax system as well for the Hebrew people. So 10% is what the word means. Again, you have it under the legalistic system, but we also have it under a non-legalistic system. And that's what we want to look for a few minutes. So tithing before the law, Genesis chapter number 14. And there's really, there's really three places in which tithing is mentioned before the law. Okay. We're going to start in Genesis chapter number 14, then we're going to go back to Genesis 4, and then we'll look at one other passage of Scripture and uh, in a couple of other texts and see these three areas in which tithing is mentioned before the law. In Genesis 14, verse 17, the Bible says, after his return from the defeat of uh, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Shavah that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He is the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
And so we see again this word here in the Hebrew is the word for tithe. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek in this text after this, after this extraordinary victory in which Abraham and, and, and others um, defeated these armies and they, and they took the bounty, if you will. And when you defeat another army, you take the bounty from that army. And Abraham then apportions back to the Lord uh, 10% of what he had gained through the a defeat of these armies. And so I was reading some commentaries this week. The, the numbers were astounding as to what they expected that the amount that would have been given to the Lord would have been in that situation. It would have been no small amount. It would have been a substantial or a significant amount of money given to Melchizedek, who was a picture of the Lord. And he brings a tithe to it, okay, we see, we see right away Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people, prior to there being a nation, prior to there being the law, the Mosaic law, Abraham brings tithes to Melchizedek, who was a picture of Christ, the lesser person giving tithes to the greater person. The greater the person, um, the, 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 the tithe was meant to display how great that person was. I think it's important to remember in in Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek, if you go back to Hebrews 7, which is where we were, our original text was, it says that Abraham was the patriarch. Um, this is a significant term in the Old Testament. I know that we're not going to get into patriarchal societies or cultures, but, but when it mentions that term back in Hebrews 7, it's, it's teaching us on the significance of Abraham. So if, 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 if God is making a point that Abraham is significant... But to whom Abraham tithes is more significant. So he's saying Abraham is the patriarch. Abraham is the head. Abraham is, is very significant in that culture. He is the patriarch of that culture. You really, in that time, couldn't have used a more significant word to describe an individual. And in Hebrews 7, the, the writer uses that term specifically to describe the significance of Abraham to say this to you and to me, that Christ Jesus is better and no one is too significant to give to the Lord. No one is too good. No one is too important. No one is too wealthy or too powerful to give, to give submission, to give willingly to the Lord. No one is better than Abraham. And because no one is better than Abraham and Christ is better than him, then no one is too big to give to Christ. So we learn that, first of all, from Abraham's gift. We learn, secondly, that he brings tithes of everything. He brings an abundance of tithes, a, a, a large amount, a 10% of all that he had amassed. And I don't want to place too much emphasis on the whole 10% that he brought. We'll look at that in the end. But we know this, that he brought abundance to the Lord. And we think of 2 Corinthians 9, the Bible says, He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, but he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So Abraham is, through Abraham's uh, example, we see, number one, that there's no one too important to give to the Lord. There's no one too important. There's no one too significant. There's no one too powerful to give to the Lord. We learn, number, number two, there's no amount that's too much to give to the Lord. I remember as a child growing up, my dad, my dad and mom did a great job of trying to teach us how to tithe. When we were very little, we, we gave 10% of our money into the offering, and 
we would always tell our, our dad and our mom, we would say, you know, when I get older and I start making more money, I'll give 10% to the Lord, right? And, and, their, and their response was always this. If you won't do it when you have a little bit, it will be that much more difficult when you have much. And it's interesting because that's a true statement. And I only tell you that because I experienced it myself. I'm not making $3.50 an hour right now, but I tell you, it's more difficult to tithe now than it was to tithe when I was making $3.50 an hour. The issue is, is if we don't create in our life some type of a discipline that, that is established based upon on God, then it, will become, it, doesn't, it doesn't become easier, it becomes more difficult. It becomes more challenging to give to the Lord. There are probably times in our lives where we're giving 10% because we're just making 10% of 500 is 50, right? And 10% of 5,000 is 500. What we would like to do is go down to the 1% at that level and stay at the 50, right? It doesn't get easier, it gets harder. But Abraham is a picture of, to us of somebody who tithed, who gave to the Lord in abundance, he gave 10%, even though he had amassed this great wealth. He's, I mean, he could have said, Lord, listen, Lord, tithe would be a million dollars. I'm not going to give you a million dollars. But he gave the Lord tenth of what he had. He gave the Lord a tenth of what the Lord had apportioned to him. And then he gives this tithe to Melchizedek. He really shows us three things in Abraham's story. Number one, there's no one too significant. Number two, there's never too much to give. And number three, to whom the tithe is given, there is a great exaltation of that person. Whomever the tithe is given, this is why we give the tithe to the church. You don't give your tithe to the pastor. You don't give your tithe to the elders of the church. You give your tithe to the church because the church is the body of Christ, right? You are giving your tithe to the church, and when you give your tithe to the church, who gets exalted? Who gets exalted? Christ gets exalted. He is seen as significant. He is seen as important. He is seen as valuable. He is displayed as significant. This is why we give to the church. I think it's, I think it's important, honestly, to give through the local church because I think it also um, depersonalizes things. I, I know we, we often like to give, we like to get, right? We like to get cards back of thank yous, and so we send money here and money there and money there, and we get all this, we get all this praise back, right? And all the praise back comes to whom? It comes to us. When we give through the church, where does all the praise go? It goes to the Lord, because it is the body of Christ. That is why the Lord has established this organism, this body, to function in such a way that it can minister God's gifts, it can minister God's things in such a way that no individual receives glory, but God receives glory. Have you ever gotten a gift in the mail that had no one that you could thank? Well, who did you thank? You thanked God, didn't you? It was a very natural thing to do when you can't thank somebody to thank God. When you can thank somebody, it's not always true, but when you can thank somebody, somebody you, sometimes you will thank them and you will not thank God. So the Lord has structured it in this way to exalt the one. <clears throat> I think it's clear in Hebrews 7 that the issue is, is by, by Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, exalts and lifts up who? Melchizedek, who is in some way a picture of Christ. So we want, to, we want to understand that. The second place that the tithe is mentioned in the Old Testament 
is back in Genesis chapter number four. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it to you, but you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Remember the story of Cain and Abel? So this is way before the law, right? This is before Abraham. Cain and Abel come to the Lord, and Cain brings a, an offering of the first fruits. He brings an offering of what he, what he does is he brings the tithe to the Lord. He brings a tithe to the Lord. Abel brings a sacrifice to the Lord. You'll notice if you go back and read in Genesis chapter number 4, there is no rebuke of Cain for bringing the offering to the Lord. He simply says to Cain, Cain, it's okay. You still have an opportunity to make an, a sacrifice. But if you don't make the sacrifice, what's going to be waiting for you when you leave? Do you guys remember the story? He says, sin is waiting at the door. Why? Why does he say sin is waiting at the door? What he is saying to Cain is simply this. Offerings and tithes do not deal with your sins. There must be a sacrifice. We often, and people will often come into God's house and they'll worship the Lord. They'll sing the wonderful songs, and I'm thankful for the songs that we sing. But listen to me. Worshiping God does not deal with your sins. They'll put money into the offering plate, and they'll think, okay, I'm good now. Putting money into the offering plate doesn't deal with your sins. None of those things are bad. But listen, Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, is the only thing that can deal with our sins. It is a sacrifice that is necessary to pay for our sins, not worship. We must be willing. Here is an offering. Here is a a tithe. Cain brings a tithe to the Lord, and the Lord doesn't say, no, thank you. The Lord says, where is my sacrifice? But this is a tithe that's mentioned way before any mention of legalistic tithe. This is an offering given to God way before there's ever mention of Moses and the commandments. This is way before Abraham. This is way before Jews and Israelites. This is way before any of that. This is the first generation of mankind. And what are they doing? They're bringing a gift. They're bringing ties to the Lord as a display of his, of his extraordinary person. But we want to remember... Make a mental note of this, write it down. Tithes and worship never replace sacrifice. Christ must be the center of your entering into God's presence. So we see that, we see that in Cain. That's the second experience. The third time that we see the um, tithes in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 28. And you can turn there because I will just look at one verse. This is Jacob, and if you'll, if you'll read through chapter 28, Jacob has just reaffirmed the promises of God. God. God has said to Jacob, listen, I'm going to bless you beyond measure, Jacob. Your, your, your genealogy, your lineage is going to be more than the numbers of this, and this is going to be, you're going to be a significant person. You're going to have significant abundance. God has just told Jacob that things are going to be good for you, Jacob. So here's what Jacob says in verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 28, the last verse says this, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be for God's house. He's setting up a, a representation or a picture, if you will, stating that this is where God's presence is. 
And he says this, and all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth back. So some people have actually read this text and said, well, he's trying to negotiate with God. He's trying to barter with God. If you give me all these things, Lord, I'll give you 10% back. I don't agree with that interpretation of this text. What I would say is, is what Jacob is saying is he's saying, Lord, thank you. He's showing a level of appreciation. He's showing a level of, of recognition that all good things come from. So he, he's saying to God, I recognize that you've given me 100% and it's not much for me to give you back 10%. It's not a big deal when you realize in your life that every good and every perfect gift comes from James 1.17. If you, when you realize that, when you acknowledge that, giving a tenth back to the Lord will become very um, little to you. When you see it as being all yours, as being you've earned it, you deserve it, this is 100% of what I've worked for, when you see it that way, then giving 10% to the Lord will become very, very challenging. Very, very difficult. So Jacob's perspective teaches us about tithing before the law. I mean, this is not legalistic tithing. Before the law, what Jacob tells us is, is that giving to the Lord based upon recognition of him giving first is simply an act of thankfulness. It is an, it is an act of acknowledging our dependence on God and acknowledging that he is blessing us in extraordinary ways. So that's tithing before the law, all right? That's tithing out. I'm not even going to deal with tithing in the law. Tithing before the law. Now, just for a few minutes, let's look at tithing in the Gospels. Tithing is mentioned twice in the Gospels. And it's interesting um, because tithing is never looked at in the Gospels as negative. It's never looked at as, as inappropriate. It's never looked at as being a bad thing. It's actually, in these two cases, it's... let's just unpack it, okay? In Luke chapter 18, you want to just turn there with me. Luke chapter 18, the Bible says in verse number 12, this is the story of the publican and um, the the Pharisee who was praying. And uh, let me just read it to you in verse number 10. Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Okay, so we see this bad guy, right? He's self-righteous, he's self-sufficient. He just thinks of himself pretty highly. And so he says, Lord, I, have, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of everything that I have. So he's really exalting himself in this moment by, by telling the Lord all of the things that he's doing that are, that are good. How many of us would say this morning that fasting is not a good thing to do? It's not a good thing to fast. None of us would say that. None of us would say that fasting or or, uh, another word that we could use in that text would be praying. But praying is not a good thing to do. We shouldn't pray because it's legalistic. It's legalistic to pray, so we shouldn't pray. None of us would say that, but we would say the same thing about tithing. 
We'll say the same, we'll make the same. Here are two, two uh, things that are good, and they're lumped together. They're put together for a reason, because this man is portraying his, his goodness. There's no, re- there's no reprimand in the text for his tithing or his, or his um, uh, fasting. There's no reprimand in that passage for those things. The reprimand is simply this, never see it as the object or a source for your righteousness. And that's the principle that's being taught. Never see your giving to God as the means by which now he has to give back to you. This guy is actually negotiating with God. He's, he's, he's bartering with God. God, you should bless me because I give tithes and I, and I, and I fast. Well, so do we throw tithes and fasting out because this guy was self-righteous about them? No, of course not, right? His attitude is what's reprimanded, not what he was doing. His attitude. So, the, so the, the text is not telling us these are bad things. The text is saying this guy is proud because he's doing these good things. He's doing these good things. The problem wasn't what he was doing. The problem was that he was doing it with the wrong attitude. Okay, none of these would be considered bad things. Matthew 5 and verse 20 tells us that our righteousness must, must exceed that of the Pharisees. The Lord tells his disciples that your righteousness must be more. And the, the issue is, is to, the, to the disciples, the issue is, is your, your righteousness has to be from your heart. And the Pharisees' righteousness was purely external. Their righteousness needed to be from their heart. Tithing is never a, is never a, mean of, never a means of righteousness. Jesus is our only source of true righteousness. Remember what Romans 5 and verse 19 says? The Bible says, by one man's righteous acts, many will be made righteous. So the basis of our righteousness is, the basis of our standing before God is not what we do, whether it be tithing, praying, coming to church, um, any of those things. The, The righteousness that we do has nothing, the righteousness that we have has nothing to do with what we do. But does it matter what you do? The danger in our culture today is to say, my righteousness is based solely on what Jesus Christ has done, and therefore I, can, I don't have to do anything. Well, you have a book here that is built around instruction on how to live a life that is a Christ-like life. It does matter what we do. It does, but it, but it never becomes a foundation for you being considered a good person. You will not stand before God and say, God, look at all that I've done for you. And he says, welcome into my kingdom. You're such a great person. That's never going to happen. But you know what? At the same time, the Bible says that every good thing that we do will be rewarded. So you're never going to be righteous before God based upon something that you have done. Yet the good things that you have done will be rewarded by him. You will receive in heaven crowns. For the things that you have done in service to our king, you will receive rewards, but you will not be accepted into heaven because you've done those things. You will only be accepted into heaven because he has done something for you. And that is that he has died on the cross for your sins. And you have embraced that personally by faith. It is his righteousness that makes us righteous, but yes, it does matter what we do. And think about this. 
Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So we could say, well, if I go to church on Sunday, then that makes me more righteous. No, that's not what he's saying. Your righteousness is based upon Christ, but your righteousness is based upon Christ. Therefore, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Does that make sense? I mean, it's not, it's not deep. This is, this is all on the shallow level. This is basic. We don't serve so that we can have God's favor. We serve because we do have God's favor. We obey because God loves us. We love him because he first loved us, right? We don't love him so that he will love us. The second time that it's mentioned is in Matthew 23 and verse 23, and this is the Pharisees. And I'm going just, to just turn there with me, if you would. Matthew 23, 23. The Pharisees are debating over this. He says, and, and the Lord rebukes them strongly in verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Okay, the Lord is saying that you are tithing, and really these three terms used to describe this tithe is simply, you are giving abundantly. You are giving a lot to the Lord's work. But you've neglected the weightier things. In other words, you've neglected the more important things, the more significant things. You've neglected those things that are heart-oriented because you're doing those things that are externally oriented. The rebuke is not that you are, don't tithe anymore and don't give of, your, of these things. The rebuke is, is don't let that become a substitute for your obedience to God in other ways. In Matthew, there's a command where the Pharisees come to Jesus and Jesus says, you're not giving to your parents what you ought to be. You're not giving your parents the respect that they deserve. And the Pharisees said, say to the Lord, well, we are giving, we serve the Lord and therefore we cannot give our parents the honor that they deserve. And the Lord says to them, that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to use the word of God to, to, to not do what the word of God says. And so he commands them to, in this text, he commands them, he says, your, he, he goes on to describe and say, your righteousness, he says in verse number, um, verse number 24, um, my eyesight is not the greatest, in verse 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, if we could just be a people that are full of justice and mercy and faithfulness, and loyalty. These are things that root in the heart. And we just love doing the outward things. But man, what is the heart like? And then here's what he says. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, he's again, he's promoting the tithes. He's promoting the offerings. But he's saying, don't neglect the heart issues. Don't let the external things that you're doing in personal righteousness over shadow the unrighteousnesses of your heart. Because if you read the rest of chapter 23, the Lord is saying to the Pharisees, you're not even saved. I mean, that's what he calls them like so many uh, names, right? It's not a good passage of scripture to read if you're a Pharisee. He's saying, don't, don't neglect the heart issues because you've got some external things right. It doesn't mean don't do the external things, but don't neglect the heart issues. This is his command to the Pharisees about, this is his talking in the Gospels about it. Remember 1 Samuel 15, 22, in the middle of that verse it says, behold, to obey is better than offerings or sacrifices. 
giving is never, a, the main theme of this is just giving is never a substitution for sinning or justification for sinning. Okay, tithing in the New Testament, Hebrews 7, verse 1 through 10, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 as well. We'll look at those in, in a few minutes here. Uh, tithing and blessing. Tithing is always connected to blessing. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 9 that if you, sow, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap also bountifully. Matthew 3, the Bible tells us that, um, that if you give into the storehouse, you will be testing God's goodness. You'll re- be testing God. And giving to him is a test of his abundant return. And it's not that we give to God to get an abundant return, but at the same time, our God is so amazing that those who do give to him receive an abundant return. We receive an abundant return. That's in, that's in Malachi 3, and it's connected to um, our text in Hebrews 7. Let me give you some practical thoughts on tithing and practice, and then I'm going to close. Tithing and practice. It's just a few practical things. If you're taking notes, these will be helpful to write down. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, to give on the first day of the week. Bring your, bring your money into the storehouses on the first day of the week. And the reason for that is the first day of the week is the, is the Lord's day, right? So they would bring in their offerings when they entered into the presence of a king. If they went, entered into the presence of a dignitary, they would bring their gifts as they entered into the presence of this dignitary. We enter into the presence of a dignity, not dignitary, but we enter into the presence of a dignity corporately on Sunday mornings, and that's when we bring our offerings to the Lord. We don't bring our offerings because we want favor from him. We bring our offerings because we have favor from him. We bring our offerings because we see him as glorious. So on the first day of the week, as we meet together corporately, then we bring our offerings to the Lord. And you'll notice in the back, we don't pass a plate here at Grace, but on the back side of those walls there, there are little boxes, offering boxes. That's where we, that's where we put our offerings on Sunday morning. And we put our offerings in there because we want to give a gift to the Lord. So we want to give on the first day of the week. We want to give to and through our local church. It is Christ's body. It is the means by which Christ is going to carry out and accomplish his purposes. It is a means by which he is glorified and we are, we are humbled by that process. Number three, give with a grateful heart, not from a legalistic necessity. Give with a grateful heart, not from legalistic necessity. Even, even in 2 Corinthians 9, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are great giving passages. If you want to read those, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, it says not to give out of necessity. And then it says, for God loves a... I knew, you guys all know that verse, don't you? God loves a cheerful giver. He says, don't even give out of, don't give out of law. If you give out of legalism, the Lord says, don't give. Because what's way more important than giving is what's in your heart, right? What's way more important than what's in the offering on Sunday is what's in people's hearts. So don't give out of legalism, but give out of gratefulness. Give out of, give out of uh, thankfulness to God. Number four, give, give because you trust, appreciate, and love God. Give because you trust, appreciate, and love God. And I'm going to read a quote at the end of this sermon. I think will be helpful for us to bring this all together. Our giving is not because we're commanded to. Our giving is because we love the Lord. That's the basis of why we give. The reason why 
the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon is because she was enamored with him. And the reason why we give to God, and I think this is the reason why we give so little to God, is because we're not enamored with him anymore. If we really knew, if we really knew, if we really got a picture, if we got a view, if we stood in the presence of the almighty God of the universe, would there be any limit to our giving? In the Old Testament, on many occasions, they were given this vision of God to the point where they had to tell people, stop bringing in money, right? Because because there was this law and everybody had to bring it. No, because they were overwhelmed with God. It's not a legalism, folks. It is a privilege. Give because you trust to appreciate and love God. Number five, give to show his value. Give to show his value and to show him honor and respect. Give to show him value and to show him honor and respect. Number five, or number six, give according to your means. Give according to your means. The Bible says in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 8, don't give above your means. Okay? Give according to your means. I would, I would even say to you this morning that 10% may be too much for you right now. It may be. I mean, I, I think that the scriptures give us 10% as kind of a, a, a starting point. I think it's a good starting point. But, I, but maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, you know what? I don't even give anything, Pastor. I don't have the money to give, to give, to give a dollar. I mean, there's a woman in the Bible that gave two mites and the Lord praises her. Just start somewhere. I, I would say this to you. If, if I knew that you could make an investment that would, change your, that would change your world, but I didn't tell you about it, would I be your friend? This is an investment that will change your world. Giving to the Lord financially will change your world. It just will. Read, read Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there will your heart go. I'm just telling you that here's an investment that's got eternal, that's got eternal returns, right? It's not a law to do it. There's no law that says, hey, you invest this amount of your money every month. It is a great investment. It is a great opportunity. So, so my, my encouragement to you this morning is sitting here is this, just start somewhere. You say, you know what, Pastor, I can't... I can't I can afford a dollar. We'll get it. Put a dollar in that box when you're walking out the door. And thank God for the gift that he gave you that you could give a dollar. And then you know what? Maybe this week you say, you know what? It is $5 for me to go to the coffee shop. It is $5. So here's what I'm going to do. On Friday, I don't know why I picked Friday, but Friday. At the end of the week, everybody's just dying for more coffee, right? On Friday, I am not going to go to the coffee shop, and that five bucks is going to go on the offering. Do you know what? You've just increased your offering fivefold. You say, well, Pastor John, it just doesn't matter. Yes, it does. God, only, God doesn't need our money. Did you know that? God doesn't need our money. He actually lets us give to him because it's a great privilege to to us. (laughs) He lets us give to him because it's a way in which we magnify him. Start start somewhere. My my challenge to you this morning is start somewhere. Give your kids a quarter in the morning and say, hey, this is your your offering. Put it in the offering. You don't know where that's going to go in their life. 
This is significant. This is important. Giving, giving is an act of worship to God. Listen, there is nowhere in the Bible that says, on the first day of the week, go to church and sing music. Is there? It's not there. But there is a command in the Bible, on the first day of the week, come in and make your offerings to the Lord. And I think singing music is great. Ron and Darren are sitting there looking at me like... We are singing music next week. Yes, we are singing music. But what I'm saying to you is this, that, that this is worship. This is worship. And, and giving to the Lord is also worship. It is worship. It is showing him how valuable he is. So, so just start somewhere. 10% may be too much. 10% may be too little. But start somewhere. The next, the next practical truth is this. Give your best. Here's what the Lord says in Malachi when it's talking about giving. He says, he says, he says, he makes this question. He says, would you give that to your boss? So let's just say, for instance, you have a really cool boss, a really good boss. The Lord is making this connection. He's saying, if you had a really great boss like God, right, like Jesus, if you had a really great boss, would you give your great boss the same things that you give God? Because these people in Malachi, they were basically giving God all their leftovers. I got this leftover, you know, I can't use that anymore, so I'll give that to the Lord. And he's saying this to them, would you give that to somebody that was really super important to you? Would you give that to your wife for Christmas? She might punch you, right? (laughs) Would you give that to your children for Christmas? Would you give that to your husband for Christmas? Does that make sense? That's what he's saying in Malachi. He's like, If you wouldn't give this to somebody else and you're willing to give it to me, what does that say about him? Does anybody? What does that say about him? He's really small and insignificant, right? So give your best, not second best, not leftovers. Give the first fruits of what God has given you. Give it back to him. Giving to the Lord in closing, giving to the Lord is not, a, is not a matter of obedience. And I want you to remember that. Giving to the Lord is not a matter of obedience. Giving to the Lord is a matter of trust. It's a matter of thankfulness. It's a matter of love. And it's a matter of worship. It shows that you acknowledge dependence on God for everything. It shows that you believe everything that you have that is good comes from God And it shows that you believe God is worthy of your tangible show of worship. Giving to the Lord will change your perspective in life. And again, I just refer you back to Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I want to say this, and I'm going to read a final quote from Charles Spurgeon. I want to say this. This this giving is not meant to be a burden to you, okay? I just want you to know that. It's not a legalism. Don't walk out of here thinking, oh man, we, we got to give our grocery money this week so that we can make Pastor John happy. No, that's not, that's not where I'm going with this thing. All I'm saying is, listen, we serve a God that's worthy of our financial gifts. We serve a God that's worthy of our financial gifts. This is not about a command in Scripture. It's about God showing us how to worship him. He's saying to us, you can worship me, and here's a way that you can worship me. This is not about a command. It's about 
trust, thankfulness, love, and worship. Here's a quote. It's a, it's a longer quote, but bear with me, and I'll close in prayer. It's by Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> Just listen. It is also noteworthy that with regard to Christian giving, he uses the word liberality, but I'm going to use the word giving just so that you know. There are no rules laid down in the word of God. I remember hearing somebody once say, I should like to know exactly what I ought to give. Yes, dear friend, no doubt you would. But you are not under a system similar to that which the Jews were obliged to pay tithes to the priest. If there were any such rule laid down in the Gospels, it would destroy the beauty. Get this. If there were any such rules laid down in the Gospel, it would destroy the beauty of spontaneous giving. And it would take away all of the bloom from the fruits of your giving. There is no law to tell me what I should give my father on his birthday. Note this. There is no law laid down in my... There is no rule laid down in any law book to decide what present I give my father on his birthday. There is no law laid down in a law book to decide what present I give my husband. There is no law laid down in a law book to tell me what gift I should give to my wife, nor what token of affection we should bestow upon others whom we love. No, the gift must be a free one or it has lost all of its sweetness. Yet this absence of law and rule does not mean that you are therefore to give less than the Jews did, but rather that you should give more. Because if I rightly understand what is implied in the terms of Christian giving, it is to be according to the example of Christ himself. Our text really gives the Christian law of giving. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. That is to say, we should give as we love. You know how much our Lord Jesus Christ loved by showing how much he gave. He gave himself for us because he loved us with all force and energy of his nature. Why did that woman break the alabaster box and pour the precious ointment? And just for reference sake, this was a year of income. This is like getting a year's salary that, this, that the woman broke and poured it over the Lord's head. Why did the woman break the alabaster box and pour the precious ointment over, upon Christ's head when it might have been sold for much and the money could have been given to the poor or she might have even kept it for herself? She gave much. Because she loved much. I commend to you this rule. This is Spurgeon speaking. I commend to you this rule. Give as you love. And then he says in closing, and measure your love by your gift. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that you would take the chains that were on this idea of giving to you, of tithing, that you would take them away, that you would help us not to, to no longer look at this as being a point of legalism, a point of a way to becoming in favor with you, but Lord, that we would see it as a, an awesome privilege and opportunity that we can give gifts to the divine creator of all things. 
And I pray that you would help us to embrace this and help us to embrace you more than anything else. That our love would be expressed by our gifts to you. Please bless us as we go from this place. Be with us, Lord God. May we glorify you in all that we do and say in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.